how far is the nearest galaxy to the Milky Way? Is green energy a viable power source? How close is our DNA to other Can life? Can we clone dinosaurs like in Jurassic Park? How does the depletion of the rainforest affect us? How do us? we know one quarter of the animals are How smart are whales and dogs? How do we know spider silk is 50 times stronger than steel? How much bacteria steel? do we have in our bodies? How do I become a scientist? Welcome to the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences as we pull back the veil on the world of science. Join us on our adventure as we answer your questions, keep you up to date on current trends and events, and show you the behind the scenes workings of a natural science museum. Here we go. Let's have some fun. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the first ever episode of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences podcast where we take you behind the scenes of a natural science museum to give you a better understanding of what happens in a facility like this. I'm your host, Aben Crawford. I'm in the emerging media team here at the museum, and joining me is my co-host, Jerry Reynolds. Jerry? Uh, I am Senior Manager of Outreach in the Education Section of the Museum, and uh, we're very pleased that we have as our guest today our curator of paleontology, Vince Snyder. Welcome, Vince. Thank you. So, Vince, tell us a little bit about yourself. I've been with the museum on staff from 1995 through present um, as curator of paleontology. Before then, I actually joined the museum as a volunteer research curator position or research associate position back in 1978. So I basically did the curation of the collection from 78 to 95 when I became permanent staff. All right. Yes, and I, I was actually a student back in the uh, late 70s uh, working at the museum part-time, and I actually uh, remember events from those days. And uh, at that time, the uh, fossil collection was pretty much uh, neglected, uh, gathering a lot of dust, and uh, uh, I think Vince came up and uh, uh, took care of that. Well, we're going to have an interesting talk with Vince today. We're definitely going to learn some history of the museum and a little bit about paleontology, or a lot about paleontology, actually. But uh, first, let's take a look back on this day in history with science. This is August 5th. This day in science. Well, we actually have two stories. Uh, the first one is a story of a not-so-successful space exploration. Uh, and I'm going to let uh, Evan tell you one about that one that was very successful. Uh, first of all, uh, on this day in 1973, uh, the Soviet space program launched Mars 6 spacecraft. This was a uh, probe program to uh, go to Mars. Uh, Mars 6 would arrive at Mars actually on March 12, 1974, and drop a lander into the atmosphere. Uh, the lander transmitted atmospheric data to the orbiter, which related back to Earth, making Mars 6 the first to transmit data from the Martian atmosphere. However, the lander ceased transmission just before touchdown. Causes unknown. It could be either from the retro rockets firing or actually a crash into the, uh, the, the Mars landscape. So we really don't know at this point. So the takeaway from that is, is you get, you get no do-overs when you go to Mars. No do-overs. It was a long trip to go for a crash. <laughs> so that wasn't a total wash. We did get some, uh, well, the, so the Soviets got some information from the atmosphere. <laughs> but uh, we did have a very big success on this day, and so much that there was a birth. In 1930, Neil Armstrong was born. Now, 
Armstrong, he was an American astronaut, and he was the first man to walk on the moon during the Apollo 11 mission. Previous to that, he was a naval pilot during the Korean War, and he became a civilian test pilot for the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. And he was the first civilian astronaut, and his first space mission was the first docking in space of two vehicles during the Gemini 8 mission. So there's a whole lot of space exploration success attributed to Neil Armstrong's birth in 1930. So we'll take that as a win. Uh, definitely a win, and I actually remember as a uh, fairly young kid uh, watching that live on TV, uh, his first steps on the moon. Pretty, pretty exciting stuff. That, 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 that was actually a, a big event. They've made movies about that, just people watching it. Not actually the landing, but there was a movie made about people watching the landing, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. So big events in our history there. And that leads us to big events here at the museum. In other words, we're going to talk with Vince Schneider now. So, uh, yeah. And you know, I think, I think the arrival of Vince was actually a big event for a museum, as I mentioned, uh, and as he mentioned, he first, uh, became associated with the museum back in the uh, late 70s. And uh, the fossil collection uh, was pretty well neglected. So I think it was a significant event in that he came on board and has brought us brought the museum to where it is. And and a question I always like to ask is, uh, uh, how did you get started with this interest in paleontology and fossils and such? Well, uh, my interest in fossils sort of came later in life, uh, in my 20s. Uh, but... You know, when I think about it, I was always someone who was very interested in natural history. I often would go around um, for long walks in the woods collecting animal bones, animal remains that I found, uh, picking up roadkill sometimes, making skeletons out of roadkill. Um, you know, so I was always interested in skeletons, bones. Um when I took a course at NC State in mammalogy back in the mid-70s, uh, I w was first introduced to a lot of, uh, they had several mastodon and mammoth bones that I became interested in and other Pleistocene animals. And so when the museum offered a trip down to a quarry in eastern North Carolina back in 76, I think it was, I went down, collected a bunch of fossils, came back to the museum thinking, ah, I don't know what these are, uh, but they will at this museum. And I bought them to the head of research and collections at that time, and he basically said he didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, they often would get specimens here for identification, and they would send them up to the Smithsonian to get identified. So... At that point, I started meeting some of the people up at the Smithsonian. Um, they wondered what was in the museum collections, and with that incentive behind it, uh, I got involved uh, with actually curating the collections of this museum. They were in storage in terrible shape at that time, and it took a long time just to get them started to catalog each of the specimens and figure out what we had, and then we started building collections. Um, so that was the beginning, and uh, we've come a long way from then. How, how well documented was the collection that was in storage? Was was it pretty well documented, or did you have to do a lot of research into figuring out what was what? Um, there was some documentation. Mm -hmm. um, there was... Um, some records, a lot of the collections were collected by, it was a 
secondary collection of invertebrate specimens collected during the 1950s by Horace Richards when he did a uh, looked at the Cenozoic marine deposits in eastern North Carolina and he took back a collection with him to Philadelphia but left a collection here at this museum. Those records we had, even though a number of those records were, since no one had looked at these collections for a long time, were actually uh, rodent eaten. Rodents had got there, made nests in some of those uh, using some of the collection records. Wow. So, you know, <laughs> as soon as we could stop that, we were able to stop that and, and proceed making the, helping with the new records. Um, yeah. So if somebody were to visit the museum today, it wouldn't resemble that at all. We're, we're a full research facility now in, a, in addition to being an educational facility. So before the late 1970s, then, is it safe to say that this is more just exhibits then for the public? And that was when the shift started happening? Um, when I first came here and looked at this museum um, in the mid-70s, um, the fossil collection was exhibited as in the old style, which is large cases with hundreds of specimens with a name and where it was found. And that's all the information you have. Um, and when we started building the new museum in 2000 and do that, uh, putting that together, we came up with a different idea, which is we would tell a story and then use certain fossils to help us tell that story of North Carolina's prehistoric past. So we did away with the hundreds and hundreds of specimens just identified and most, not all of them correctly identified to specimens that were correctly identified and were part of a story of North Carolina's past. Now, when, when people think of, you know, major fossil producing areas, most people think of uh, places out west, arid areas uh, out west with uh, you know, very little, very little vegetation. Uh, is North Carolina poor in fossil records, or is it harder to find? Before all those records out west were ever made, paleontologists were in North Carolina. Wow. Um, they were looking back in the 1850s at different deposits along the rivers and streams of North Carolina for Cenozoic and Cretaceous deposits uh, that were here. And also, we're looking in places in the red beds of North Carolina, those sediments that you actually make bricks from in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. They were looking in those, because, and in those areas, we also had coal. And in Lee County and Chatham County, uh, back in the 1800s, up until the 1930s, there were a number of deep uh, pit or deep shaft coal mines. And they would bring up the reject material, that shale that was around the coal, and a lot of this material actually had fossils in it. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the, the number one fossil, the one that's cataloged as AM&H number one, the American Museum of Natural History in New York's number one specimen is of a phytosaur, Rudiodon carolinensis from North Carolina. Wow, I think, I think a lot of people don't really realize of that history of uh, paleontology in the state. That's very interesting. Uh, I know that there's uh, a lot of work that goes into, one, excavating fossils and doing it you know, very carefully. I've, 
I've seen you work some in the field, and uh, obviously we've all seen some of what's on TV with paleontologists and how carefully they must uh, uh, excavate the material. Uh, but there's also, uh, and we're in an office here where we are literally surrounding, surrounded by fossils right now, and I know a lot of preparation has to go into these. Uh, what, what is, once you bring it in from the field, what, what do you do with the stuff? Well, um, it gets prepared, which uh, basically means you're cleaning the matrix or the dirt sediment that's around the fossil away from the fossil to expose more of the fossil. Um, it all depends how difficult that is, depending on how hard the sediment is around the fossil. In some of the eastern counties in North Carolina where we have big marine deposits, they're buried in almost like a sand. So the actual cleaning of the fossils and uh, hardening of the fossil, you know, doesn't take a whole lot of time. When the sediment around the fossil is more hard and more difficult to take off, we have to use a number of different mechanical devices, um, starting with just a small scraper called a pin vise over to a little micro jack uh, that sort of abrades the loose uh, the sediment and takes particles away to micro sandblasters. Wow, very interesting. And, uh, so it's, at times, part of your daily routine, it's a, it's a real grind in you know, getting into your work. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, how, um, what's your staff made up of? I mean, who, who's here helping you with this? Currently, right now, in, and I'm in the uh, Triassic Research Laboratory here at the Museum of Natural Sciences. Um, I've got myself, one full-time staff person, and I've got half of a collections manager and part of a technician position it's currently 10 hours a week so not a whole lot of staff we've got more staff over in the paleontology geo lab which has uh, three permanent staff people over there how, how, how many specimens are actually in the collections now because i'm i mean i'm just looking at what maybe about a hundred things lying in uh, cardboard trays in front of me on this desk um yes you're looking at uh over a hundred specimens there, but all of those count for one specimen. So they're uh -huh. just one number. Um, that's all part of one large phytosaur skull um, that has to be pieced back together. Um, currently in our collections of both um, vertebrate fossils, invertebrate fossils, and paleobotanical specimens that we have, we have over 120,000 specimens. Wow. So I guess a, a successful paleontologist probably has a lot of putting together jigsaw puzzles in their background. Um, yes, yeah, some of them do. You know, we rely, and, you know, I told you we had just a few positions here. We rely heavily on trained volunteers that we do training. We've got over 30 volunteers in this lab, and I think they probably have about 20 or 30 volunteers in the other lab, plus students from NC State. Now, um, one thing that somebody may not realize when they come into this museum is we have the ex the exhibition part that the guests, that the visitors actually see. But there's so much more behind the scenes here that they'll never see. Is it safe to say that we have way more off the floor than we have on the floor that people can see? Um, that's probably correct. There is a lot more. Now, it's a little bit different because uh, when the Nature Research Center was built, we put 
more on exhibit and with the open lab that you can actually see preparation go that's sort of a an exhibit lab area that's also available to the um, public but there are quite a bit of collections and labs that are still below ground or away from the normal visitor and we have a few things here that are kind of unique to this museum in that we have a dinosaur with a heart and we have the Acrocanthosaurus, right? Or did I pronounce that correctly? Acrocanthosaurus? We have the Acrocanthosaurus specimen, which is a uh, late Cretaceous dinosaur about 112 million years. Um, it's the best preserved of the Acrocanthosaurus specimens out there, best preserved skull of any Acrocanthosaurus. Um we do have uh, the willow specimen, which originally was thought to have a heart preserved in it, but later research, and this is how research goes, you know, you put out a hypothesis and, you know, you publish on it, but then that also opens it up for other researchers to come in and see if they can duplicate your work. And when another group came in and tried to duplicate the work on seeing whether the concretion in the chest cavity was a heart or not, they were not able to prove that it was a heart. So I think we uh, don't have a preserved heart in the willow specimen, but that specimen has the best preserved, as of this moment, skull of any thesaurosaur. And it's also got a pretty good uh, postcranial, which is beside the head, uh, part of that skeleton preserved. So, so research is a continual process, and, a, and the fact that you have all of these specimens means that more research can happen on them. And by preserving them for future researchers, there may be newer technologies, actually, that might yield more information than we can get from these specimens right now. So it's real important, you know, that these specimens are, are here and, and are going to be here forever, in, in essence. All right, and uh, we're going to come right back to talk more with Vince, but let's take a moment out to see what's happening in the news in the science world. We'll be right back. All right, science in the news. Now, this is just a brief, but you can go to the website, naturalsciences.org, and get the full story, get the link to the full story, so you can see what this is all about. But get this, selfish traits not favored by evolution. That's what a new study shows. It says evolution does not favor selfish people. And this challenges a previous theory, which suggests that it was preferable to put yourself first. Instead, this study says it pays to be cooperative, and this is shown in a model of the prisoner's dilemma, which is a scenario of game theory, the study of strategic decision-making. Now, this was published in Nature Communications, and the team says that their work shows that exhibiting only selfish traits would have made us become extinct. So, remember, head to naturalsciences.org, and there you'll find the links to the story, and you can see the rest of the story. So, let's get back to the interview. Jerry? Uh, you know, Vince, in your, in your years of working here in the state, what, what, what has been the most exciting or significant fossil find that you have actually made? Um, most exciting fossil finds that I've ever made. 
At one time, that was an easy question because they, <laughs> it, they were limited, you know, right. different things. Um, I'm going to answer that two ways. Some of the things that we actually found that are significant uh, and also some of the significant fossils that have come out not only by my collecting but other people. Okay. The first I'm going to talk about are some of the things that I've found. I remember... One of, one of the exciting parts, uh, I remember a long time ago, back in the early, in the eighties, I think we were collecting on uh, a river down in eastern North Carolina and went into a little tributary and one walked up that tributary a few steps. It had, it was definitely, uh, a really channelized or carved section coming out, you know, cause very high walls around this tributary and right there in the middle of the stream glistening was a beautiful black mastodon tooth wow just sitting there completely <laughs> whole wow and that had to be one of the the thrilling parts there because you know you don't just walk up and there's a mastodon tooth just sitting on a pedestal for you and what was your first word that you said when you saw that if you can pronounce that I have no idea right now. <laughs> that, that was many, many years ago. Um, uh, some of the more interesting things, and, you know, let's get into it now. You know, I've been able to work uh, um, on a actual dinosaur excavation that was found by somebody else, but actually being present uh, for the excavation of a duckbill dinosaur, uh, one we have... That's named Nancy, that we have 85% of it. That was very exciting to be wow. part of. But most of the specimens that I've had um, a real thrill with collecting have been out of the Triassic of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Collected things which, and you know, some of this is exciting in the field, and some of it's exciting in the lab, because like one of the specimens that we um collected was a little sonodont, which is a little pre-mammal. Um, all that I saw of this specimen when I collected was a large canine teeth sticking out right at the edge of the rock with a little piece of bone from the upper jaw exposed, but it was all going back into the rock. It was not until years later when we prepped a lot of that away that we found out we had a complete skull and a good part of the um, postcranial skeleton, you know, the, the limbs and, you know, a lot of the vertebrae and other parts of the body there. So that was one that discovery kept on going for years because as we prepare, we saw more and more of this animal. We also uh, was involved in a, found a beautiful Aetosaur specimen that, uh, we're getting ready to probably put the finishing touches on this fall to describe as a new species. In fact, we got two new Iodosaur specimens that uh, both of those I discovered that uh, came uh, about. And then we have other things. Um, you know, the one interesting thing here is one of the big discoveries we made was done by my collections manager, Trish Weaver, when she was sitting down in a break when I was uh, doing a recording for Exploring North Carolina at a site. So she was watching the site and then looked down, and there was part of a skull of <laughs> a, uh 
a little sphenodont, which or a sphenosuchian, which is a crocodilian-like animal. And it turned out that we had most of the skeleton of that specimen. But, you know, I was busy at the time showing other things to be on film. Unfortunately, this, we're in a lab here, so there can be no new discoveries made while we're sitting here. <laughs> well, uh, that, that, that difference between the lab and the field, uh, by this time, everybody's seen Jurassic Park, and they've seen the, the scenes in that movie of the excavation of the dinosaur, and they've got this pristine dinosaur in the, in the sand that they're going at with little brushes and stuff. Now I'm in, I'm in your, I'm here and I'm looking at all of these bits and pieces on the desk and I'm looking over at your shelves and I see the plaster casts of things. So the, the realities of collection in the field are completely different. You're not ever going to go and just be working with little brushes and pulling up a full pristine skeleton, correct? Uh, we, it's, it's a little bit not messier in the areas that I work, you know, in some, you know, I collected a bird skeleton of a type of uh, auk from uh, the big uh, quarry in eastern North Carolina, a uh, big phosphate quarry. And that skeleton was sitting there, and we just used some picks, hand tools to go in around it and pull the whole thing out, you know. Um, in most cases, what we're doing is messy. It's dirty. Um, the specimen you're looking at took... Oh, took several weeks to get out of the ground. It took jackhammers, rock saws, uh, you name it. And it didn't come out even as we wanted it because it would always break in the wrong position. So, you know, um, it's never that easy. Um, I haven't found, at least I haven't found those sites. Where we work out in Arizona right now, it's a little bit easier because we're actually working in a, a low bank, uh, which is clay, so we can dig down to the layer. But, and the bones are in a little bit more wet clay, so you can use brushes and that, but you still have to pick around. And in most cases, most bones have bra breaks and cracks in them. They just don't pick up as a nice, clean piece like they did in that movie. Um, one of the most significant specimens um, that actually got me interested in the Triassic in North Carolina was the specimen that was found in the Triangle area by a group from the uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And this, what they found was in a quarry that not much is ever found in. Um, but they happened upon that one spot and they were there exactly at the right time, and they found the skeleton of a Rausukian, which was a large early archosaur, which is like a crocodilian-like animal. This was a large predator, and it was laying on top of another smaller crocodilian-like animal called uh, Dromicosuchus. So these two animals, one was laying on the top of the other, and the larger one also had its stomach preserved in its stomach ribs called Grist gastralia. And inside its stomach were the remains of four other animals. Wow. So it had the remains of another archosaur called an aedosaur. It had several plates from that animal. It had part of a plate of a large amphibian called a metoposaur. And it also had two bones that were parts of 
pre-mammals. One, a larger pre-mammal called a disomodont, and the other, a very small, uh, rodent-sized animal called the traversodont. And that one, they had a little piece of jaw. So far out of that group of animals, there are three new species that have been described. Wow, talk about hitting the fossil jackpot there. And I think that actually got a lot of press. I think I remember the press picked up on that story. It was a, it was a student at Chapel Hill. Right. Correct, it just sort of stumbled stumbled on it, literally. Right, so. and wasn't looking for fossils. <laughs> was looking at the geology. Right, yeah. wow. So you never know. So, but that also sort of pushed me into looking at these Triassic deposits, which, you know, we had, I think, um, when I first came to this museum, there was uh, a big block, and I'd say probably about 25 pounds, and it had a broken piece of bone in it that looked like a rib, and it said, our oldest fossil, and it was just of a Triassic rib found somewhere, and it was in very poor shape. But, you know, we could do better, and we have done much better since then. Wow. Uh, in in your years and in the field, uh, has the field pretty much stayed the same or, or has it changed, uh, in the past, you know, 20, 20 plus years? Um, the field like a paleontology? Right. Is the, I guess, you know, a lot, a lot of advances in technology. Has that changed the field? Well, in any a way? lot of things have changed. Um, if you go back 20 or 30 years, you know, back into the seventies, and I hadn't been to any of the early meetings of the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, but they talked about the meetings being several hundred people. Now there's several thousand people going to an annual wow. meeting. Wow. So the science of paleontology has grown in leaps and bounds. A um, lot of students uh, out there studying paleontology. Um, has the science changed? The science has changed you know, from, you know, years and years ago when it was basically collecting fossils and doing descriptions of animals, there's so much more that's actually now looking inside the animals, looking at growth studies from uh, thin sections of how the animals were growing to actually looking, and this is some of the pioneer work that's been done by Dr. Mary Schweitzer, who's also a on our staff and also on the staff of NC State University and are looking at the biology of dinosaur bones, looking at soft tissue, fossil proteins, and fossil blood vessels that have been preserved in dinosaurs. Well, th there's been a, a lot of difference. Uh, I was a kid growing up in the 70s, and in the 70s, I remember the T-Rex stood upright like Godzilla. There was a dinosaur called the Brontosaurus, and <laughs> they were looking like lizards. There were no feathers on dinosaurs. Now, uh, all that has pretty much changed, hasn't it? So that's a pretty big shift from the 70s to now as to what was known before the 70s, correct? Yes. Um, you know, a lot more has been done with um, the way dinosaurs walked. You know, their tails were held out erect. And how do we know this? It's looking at muscle scars and also on the bones, to show that they had these very heavy muscles and also looking at these ossified tendons that held their tails very erect. They couldn't bend like they showed them in the old, old things. And it was all more of a, a fulcrum thing. You know, you had these huge heads on these dinosaurs. They needed something to balance that out, you know. Um, 
and you get evidence from a number of different places. You also get evidence from trackways. You know, T-Rex trackways and other large animals had track have trackways. There are no tail drags on those trackways. You know, so you know that showed that that wasn't uh, correct. Um, if you go way back in the literature, sometimes there were paleontologists that had made the bird dinosaur connection back in the early 1900s. But um, they were largely ignored and put on uh, the back burner, but they've sort of come back. Almost all paleontologists today would say that the birds are the avian branch of the dinosaur line. They're the living dinosaurs. Um, and some of that's because of what has been found in the fossil record. There's so much more to be found, but, you know, even the deposits in China that actually show these little theropod dinosaurs with feathers. So we do know that some dinosaurs were feathered. Well, and I know that there's also some insight into the behavior of these animals, too, based on the evidence that's in the fossil record in terms of nesting behavior and other things. In the trackways you mentioned, uh, I think you could even see some instances of perhaps some predation uh, about to happen with a, a carnivorous dinosaur on the, on the trail of uh, another, perhaps a smaller one. So. Right. And, you know, some of the things that we, you know, when people ask me, well, will we ever know that? You know, you could have said, well, probably not. But now I always sit back and say, I don't know. <laughs> um, because, you know, years ago, we would have all thought that there was no way possible that we would ever know the color of fossil animals because all we have are the bones. But, you know, we've seen from studies of some early penguins that they were actually to get out some preserved color pigments out of the fossils. And also some of the feathered dinosaurs people are looking at color. So, you know, we don't know what the new technologies that will come that will actually be able to see further into those fossils or look at them differently. Wow, it's such an exciting field to be able to to look back and to find out this about life on Earth. Uh, well, the geek in me is still holding off for time travel. <laughs> you know, I, I can't let that one go. I think you got a little bit of a weight on that. Probably well, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Vince, um, we're we're getting a little uh, getting toward the end here, I, and I really want to pose this one question to you. If somebody is interested, you, you talked about when you were when, when you were young, you would put together bones yourself. You put together skeletons yourself. You always had an interest in this. If somebody had that interest today and wanted to work in a natural science museum or or as a researcher or in the science field in general, what would that per what should that person be doing right now? What, what what should that person gear themselves toward in the future? I think you need to first get up with other people that have similar um, likes and dislikes. Um, I often recommend to people that are interested in fossils and that getting up with North Carolina Fossil Club or other clubs that actually people share different, uh, you know, their love of fossils. Um, I also, and this is not open for everyone because everyone doesn't live near a museum, unfortunately. But, you know, if you're 
live close enough to a museum that you could travel and volunteer. Museums are always looking for good volunteers. Um, and, you know, we have phenomenal programs at this museum, especially with especially young kids, especially from seventh grade, uh, our girls in science program, to our junior curator, which I think is eighth grade through through twelfth through twelfth, um, where kids can actually work with the curators and come in and and do basically working with scientists and get them involved. What I would encourage everyone is if they're interested in it, um, for their parents to basically give them things to read, get them involved. And also, one of the things I always give uh, to students uh, that are especially, you know, junior high or younger that really want to learn paleontology and want to do everything, I said, one of the skills you really need, and it's not digging. Um, we can teach you that in one day. Um, <laughs> it's how to write. Uh, it's, and, you know, what they need to learn is how to keep a good field journal. All right. All so, right. Vince, thank you so much for being our first guest in our first ever episode. Uh, just to let you know, if you are in the state, if you're out of the state, we'd love to see you here at the museum. We're located at 11 West Jones Street. And we're in downtown Raleigh. Now, general admission to our museum and several other museums in the Raleigh area is free. Now, we do have movies and traveling exhibits that are available for a small fee, but the general admission here is free, so come on down and see us. Uh, talk to us. Meet us. Also, consider supporting the museum by becoming a friend of the museum or donating to the Friends of the Museum. Now, all the information can be found at our website, which is naturalsciences.org. And also, we have events coming up. Now, a big event that's coming up, and you will not want to miss this, is Bugfest 2013. That's going to be September 21st. This is always a fun event. This brings out the crowds. Uh, you can talk a little bit more about Bugfest. You've been through a few. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a great time. Bugs of all types. And uh, you can even eat a bug if you'd like to. That is true. On the 20th, the day before Bugfest, you can come on down and we're going to have dueling chefs making delicacies out of critters. And uh, just so you know, the star of this year's Bugfest is the scorpion. Am I correct on that? That is correct. Very unique animal. Uh, and we do actually have scorpions in North Carolina. A lot of people do not realize that. Yeah, some, somewhere along the line, somebody said, let's take a lobster, a spider, let's crunch them together and give them a bad attitude, and we got a scorpion out of that. <laughs> you know, so that's good. And, and a bee. They have a stinger. So a bee, too. Take those three, you get scorpions. Of course, that's not scientific. That's just me being stupid. But you'll want to be here for... Bugfest 2013, September 21st. And remember, the museum is open late every Thursday. We have a science cafe on that day where we have interesting people giving talks. We have trivia. All kind of stuff happens on that Thursday. So make it a family night. Come see us. We're also open late the first Friday of each month, and we show an old sci-fi movie or something along that line on those days. So always something interesting here. Uh, Vince, any uh, last words before we take off? One of the things that I would say, especially if you get interested in fossils, and this helps us a lot, is that the most important information you can have with any specimen that you collect by yourself is where you found it. Because a specimen without the locality data is basically meaningless to scientists. And, you know, we often get uh, people coming and saying, well, I've got these fossils. Uh, 
what are they? And I ask where they found them. And a lot of times it's the attic. And the, the <laughs> attic is not a good place. And one other thing, if you find something and you don't know what it is, we're always there to sort of answer that question at this museum of, you know, what we think it is. We may not always have the right answer because there are a lot of things out there we don't know, but uh, we can always give it a good shot. And remember, somebody in this very room got their job by bringing something to the museum and nobody knew what it was. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right, Jerry. So I think the first episode went pretty good. I think so. Thank you for coming on board as host. You're welcome. Vince, thank you again for being our first guest. And we will see you next time. Enjoy, everybody. Enjoy, everybody.